Welcome back to another Crypto Daily 3 at 3. Um, as with every Monday, uh, today is Long Read Sunday Top 5 Day. So Long Read Sunday is my weekly curation of the most interesting, important uh, events uh, and content that happened the week before. And then on Monday mornings, I uh, collaborate with Block TV to turn it into a video top five countdown of the five most important threads, essays, and just generally most important topics that I saw all week. Um, this week is no different. Uh, we talk a little bit about uh, Binance US and the narrative watch of de-Americanization. We get into some questions of uh, censorship, um, social media, technology, and power. And then we end on, again, this kind of mega trend of the convergence of the global macro narrative with the um, the Bitcoin narrative uh, and see. So with that, I'm going to say adios and tune in uh, to the Block TV Long Read Sunday Top 5. I will see you tomorrow on Tuesday for a regular uh, Crypto Daily 3 at 3. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you soon. Welcome back to Block TV. It's time now for Long Read Sundays. And every Sunday, the crypto community receives a treat in the form of a well-researched and thought-out Twitter thread by one of the top writers documenting the ecosystem. I'm, of course, talking about Nathaniel Whitmore and his Long Read Sundays Twitter column. Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so this week, kicking off your top highlights from Long Read Sundays, we start off with number five, which continues Binance's long-running trend of being a great communicator uh, with their larger network, speaking, of course, about the listing uh, by Binance US, talking about their asset listing framework, as well as 30 prospective assets under review. Why did this catch your attention? Yes, yeah, so there's there's a couple things going on here. The first is that obviously Binance is, uh, you know, one of the biggest exchanges in the world. Um, they have huge impact on the market. So any any time that they're uh, opening a new product, especially one that's going to have uh, mainstream access in a major market like the U.S., it's worth paying attention to. Um, it's also interesting because over the last couple of months, we've been watching this narrative of de-Americanization of uh, crypto in a lot of ways, where regulatory pressure or just simple lack of regulatory clarity is forcing some exchanges to actually uh, leave the U.S., right? Circle is setting up shop in Bermuda, I think, uh, officially, and seeing more and more of their business happening in Asia and elsewhere. So Binance U.S. It was announced a couple months ago. Uh, at the same time as Binance announced that it would be geo-blocking U.S. customers from its Binance.com service. So the question has been, what are the assets that are actually going to be on Binance U.S.? Is it going to basically just be Coinbase? Um, and sure enough, a lot of the assets that it seems like they're listing are similar to those that are on Coinbase. So in addition to the 30 or so assets that they um, suggested are under consideration, and they haven't made any promises, uh, they, they gave actually their framework for how they're looking at this, which is really valuable. So um, first, they, they you know the, the big thing, the banner headline is it has to be, in their estimation, compliant with U.S. regulators. Obviously, that's the whole point of this exchange is to compete in a compliant way. Um, second, they're looking for whether the, the team is actually trying to, to solve a, a real problem and do they have a clear strategy for getting there. I think the idea here is to uh, basically just to, to have to say that it's real coins that real people are working on. Um, they also mention uh, whether the candidate asset community uh, has a record of reaching compromises and consensus to move the project forward. Those are their words. Um, I think this is, uh, is subtext for, you know, can this project evolve or is it just going to hard fork into a million 
confusing side chains. Um, and they have a couple more as well. But the, the, the idea here is that, you know, in addition to just seeing what assets they're considering, we're getting a sense of how they're, how they're choosing. Um, and this also, in some ways, de facto almost creates a template for how tokenized projects might think about themselves, uh, you know, for future listings as well. And now I understand as well, an interesting point that's come out of this, of course, is that they're saying that they will list their Binance coin. And there was some speculation early on when they talked about the geo-blocking and setting up the U.S. Uh, dedicated exchange that perhaps they might have faced some regulatory issues with their own coin. Uh, does that seem to have been addressed in any way uh, by Catherine Coley in this uh, statement or does that still seem to be in the air? No, that's definitely still in the air. And, uh, you know, again, for uh, from their standpoint, all they've done is suggest that they're weighing whether or not they should do that, which I think was enough to get a lot of people excited. Um, but obviously, there's a, there's a lot of folks in the legal community who think that that's uh, there, there's some pretty clear issues there, but that'll be extra interesting if they if they you know go through this regulatory process. You know they have um, very expensive lawyers, uh, you know, digging deep to figure out what they think the the tenor of the U.S. is right now, and if they think they can get away with BNB, that'll be a real interesting signal to the rest of the market. Yeah, certainly, it uh, would be a chance for them to break in in a very powerful way to the U.S. market. We'll have to see how that one plays out. So now moving to your number four, Nathaniel and. We've got Kick back in the headlines after a, a little time on the sidelines, uh, making uh, some pretty big statements and kicking back pretty hard. What can you tell us? Yeah, so uh, for, for those of you who were paying attention a couple months ago, the SEC um, sued Kick for its token sale, effectively. This is one of the biggest, kind of most high profile enforcement actions we've seen from the SEC. Um, and what's more, the SEC complaint against Kick was uh, was pretty aggressive, right? Um, now this was all uh, preceded by Kick creating or, or announcing the Defend Crypto Fund, which was supposed to rally the crypto world around a, a, a legal defense of tokens and um, and kind of create a, a slush fund or pool of resources or whatever you want to call it that could be used to combat the SEC uh, in court to try to actually bring. Um, clarity to not only clarity to token designation, but uh, to, to make it clear that most tokens or many tokens are not in fact securities. They need their own designation. Now, this a lot of people when when we were first having this conversation um, were a little uncomfortable with the idea of Kick as kind of the standard bearer. Um, Defend crypto as a campaign kind of went nowhere. Um, in fact, uh, Kick's money was withdrawn from it, so they could just defend themselves. Um, and so this is uh, this is kind of the, the latest salvo, where basically Kick is accusing the SEC of all sorts of um, you know manipulating their words and this and that. And I think the the thing that was notable. So I, I'm taking my clues from Catherine Wu, who uh, formerly of Masari, now at Notation Capital, um, who annotated the entire 117-page document. An impressive and, uh, feat, no doubt. Yes, I think she said it took her like five hours. She was up to like 3 a.m. doing it. Wow. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, I, you know, it, it seemed like in terms of her assessment that the thing that was notable was just how aggressive they were being. Um, and, it, and it a little bit seemed like showmanship, right? It a little bit seems like this is, this is kind of for the narratives and for the headlines. I think why it matters to the rest of the crypto community is that the reality is, is that 
U.S. companies are still at a loss for real clarity when it comes to um, how tokens are considered. You know, and there are some that say, well, that's not exactly true. The SEC has made clear its positions, but it, it really hasn't. And there's confusion across different departments about what tokens are. There's, you know, high profile uh, Senate hearings about how to regulate and, you know, senators and congresspeople even asking, should there be a new agency? Um, and I think it's just it's just the case that there is not clarity, at least sufficient clarity when it comes to how the government is going to look at different types of tokens or are they going to treat different types of tokens differently um, and we're starting to actually see that impact where uh, companies are choosing to domicile themselves so uh, it's it's kind of interesting for the the blunder and you know uh, and heavy language but it's more interesting long term for what comes out of the case and i guess that will be a case closely watched particularly for u.s crypto interest to see how that all pans out uh, but I guess there's a wait and see sort of situation. While we do, let's move now to the number three for this week, which uh, I guess moves a little out of strict crypto, but certainly very important for anyone interested in uh, digital security and censorship laws in the United States. The executive branch looking to perhaps step in when it comes to social media censorship. What can you tell us? Yeah, so, you know, I think that it's important to always view crypto not just as this uh, independent uh, asset class that's exciting new technology or something like that, but in the context of the forces that um, almost created the motivation for it, right? And I think a lot of those forces are things like impending surveillance, uh, fears of censorship, right? Fears of what centralization might mean if played out in less uh, less stable, more turbulent times. And so this, this uh, you know, this latest... Uh, salvo from the U.S. government, um, it, it's a little bit political, right? So uh, for those who maybe aren't paying attention closely to U.S. politics, there's a war around the idea of uh, whether social media companies are um, are politically biased, particularly against conservatives. This has been a, a, a conservative argument for the last, for a while, but it, it's gotten some uh, some extra extra attention lately. The White House held a social media summit um, with with kind of some highly controversial figures, you could say. And one of the things that they uh, that came out of it was this proposal to empower the Federal Communications uh, Commission and the uh, the FTC um, together to police social media censorship. Um, and Preston Byrne, who is uh, both a lawyer and is historically conservative, um, and coming from that perspective, basically throws down the hammer and says it's just it's not constitutional. It's absolutely outside of the powers of the executive branch to do this. Um, and this is something that we we can't be doing. We can't, uh, you know, the government doesn't have the power and shouldn't have the power to tell companies what they do with regard to content outside of uh, extremes of of illegal content. Um, and uh, and so it's interesting because there's again it, to me it is exemplary of this back and forth tension of uh, technology and and tech companies in particular present a, a very new and different type of corporate force vis-a-vis -vis the government. Um, it's it's a type of power that we haven't seen before at a scale that we haven't seen before, and you know governments don't know exactly what to do with it and. A lot of the uh, a lot of the, the the challenges. What's the right way to regulate these companies, or or kind of you know draw draw lines around what they can do without just completely instituting a surveillance state? So um, you know this is this is again kind of a an example I think of that the power of um, or the the fight I guess for power in the context of a new media landscape.
And certainly this doesn't just come to a matter of censorship, but uh, as you pointed out in a, another tweet where uh, Marty Bent addresses the fact that there also seems to be pushes to take control of encryption mechanisms, uh, which has been a hot, long a hot topic of debate whether public... Uh, forces a uh, government should have the right to access some of those more encrypted documents that private citizens hold. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is in some ways a more worrisome uh, thing. You know, the social media censorship piece, as I said, is is a lot of it does have meaningful impact. And I, I'm glad that people are kind of uh, getting noisy about it. However, um, what Marty was focusing on is uh, a story I think that we've talked about here as well, which is the Attorney General William Barr continues to bring up this interest in um, in basically ending end end encryption and creating backdoors for law enforcement in uh, in apps like in messenger apps, for example, um, and uh, and there was even more with that uh, this week um, with uh, with Attorney General Barr. So this is an ongoing story, but this is one of those key battle lines again uh, in the new tech landscape of you know how much power will technology companies be able to have to resist. Uh, the, the 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 long arm of the government using you know kind of ending end-to-end um, -end encryption and uh, and that's a, a, a big TBD with huge implications. And certainly, massive implications could potentially be in place. Uh, but now moving to your number two for this week, and this is one that particularly caught my interest here. This uh, thread by Alex Rampel talking about the way that uh, currency systems and the way governments use currency systems has fundamentally changed in the digital economy. Uh, talk a little bit about this concept, maybe break it down for our viewers here. Yeah, it's a really fascinating thread. Um, and, uh, and so basically what Alex was noting is that originally when, when governments had the power to kind of print money and control currency, they were controlling the flow of transactions happening within their borders and by their citizens. As payment networks have globalized, that's become less and less the case. And it's kind of happened quietly underneath, uh, under, you know, in front of everyone's eyes without us really knowing it, right? So things like Visa and MasterCard haven't historically threatened, um, you know, government's ability to print money in the same way that we think about, you know, or we talk about potentially cryptocurrencies uh, impacting the, the power of sovereign money or providing an alternative. However, they do create a, a, a de facto international power center that lies outside of those governments. And so the example that he used was um, Crimea, where uh, Visa and MasterCard are no longer supporting bank cards uh, that, that, are, that are there, and, or, or I think even citizens who are using those cards elsewhere. So that obviously has you know, significant impact on what the power of that local jurisdiction is relative to the larger world. Um, and Alex goes on to kind of speculate that he really thinks that, uh, that as, as time proceeds, governments are going to recognize more and more that the, the risks that they have, geopolitical risk, isn't just traditional resources like, uh, like oil, for example. It is, in fact, um, where power in networks lies. Uh, and that's, he, you know, in his estimation, pretty much the only government that's really thinking about this is China. And of course, that segues neatly uh, onto the other point that you made, that China is indeed taking this action seriously and attempting to create their own uh, form of digital currency, something they've recently announced. Yeah, and so, uh, so you know, one of the conversations in, in the crypto space uh, more largely has been what kind of the, the, the we're seeing, I think, a, a, maybe a bifurcation or even a trifurcation of this industry now, you know, from one big monolithic thing called crypto into uh, public openless permissionless chains on the one hand, 
corporate chains, enterprise chains, uh, permission chains on the other, and then government chains is kind of the third leg of this stool potentially. Um, and you, you've started to have some different, uh, you know, nationalities, municipalities announce that they're exploring uh, central bank digital currencies. Obviously, you have very notably um, and very kind of cynically the Petro in Venezuela. But the People's Bank of China, uh, an official from there, said after five years of research and development, they're um, close to being ready to go live with a with a digital currency, so a, a central bank digital currency. Um, and these things are are. Uh, hugely important to watch for a variety of reasons, uh, not least of which, going back to our, our kind of previous point about surveillance, um, nothing more hits at the, the challenge of the battle between convenience and surveillance as a central bank digital currency. It is the most surveillable, the most trackable, the most manipulable form of money that, that will ever have been created. Yet at the same time, for the average citizen going about their lives, it will likely be the most convenient form of money ever created. Um, and that presents a real challenge. So uh, it's interesting to see. It's, I don't think it's surprising that, that China is one of the first major powers to get there. Um, but it, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised, especially as we see more hearings in the US about cryptocurrency in general and Libra, Libra in specific, um, to see this move by China uh, create some pressure on, on other powers like the US to follow suit or at least catch up uh, intellectually and, and figure out what's going on. And certainly it seems there's a lot of catching up to do around the world with various different governments and economies. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. Uh, but moving now to your number one for this week. Now this is, this is an interesting one. I'm going to need your help with this one a little, Nathaniel, because there's a, a technical analytical breakdown here by Raul Pal talking about uh, what he sees as a convergence of threats and issues coming into the global economy. What, uh, what do you see as the central point to take away from here? Yes, yeah, so, so I would say that the, there's two, two ways to look at this. One is he's making a specific point about what he sees as looming currency crises, where all kind of, you know, a huge number of different sovereign currencies are, uh, are, are poised for really uh, challenging times ahead, uh, particularly in relation to the U.S. dollar. So that's kind of part one. Part two, which I think is the reason that it's number one and the more interesting context for me is that, uh, you know, Raul's kind of the the ground zero right now for um, the converging narratives between Bitcoin and the global macro community. And this has been happening for a little while, you know, for obviously when, when Bitcoiners talk about store of value, uh, they're not just talking about um, kind of as a way to preserve wealth over the next couple months, they're talking about a long-term hedge against systemic crisis. And, uh, and, and it's been interesting to watch as the global macro community who are more focused on things like foreign exchange and kind of these big credit flows to start to look over to the Bitcoin world and to the cryptocurrency world more broadly and, uh, and start paying attention in a major way, not just as an interesting investable asset, but I think in that thread, Raul calls it a, a call option on a potentially new system, which I think is a phenomenal way to put it, right? Um, and, and you know, this was the narrative over the course of all of last week was, you know, uh, after Trump uh, put new sanctions on China and China devalued the UN, and then uh, we labeled them a currency manipulator, and then the stock markets tanked, Bitcoin was performing well that whole time. Um, what's more, over the last few months, Bitcoin has started to correlate more to gold uh, in a, having meaningful correlation in a way that it really hasn't before. And so all of this brought up the question for people, is Bitcoin the new safe haven asset? Um, I think that's kind of a short-term question in some ways, uh, in the sense that it obviously still has volatility and you know there's a million arguments that you could kind of say against this. But if you take this idea 
of Bitcoin, not in kind of a short term, uh, not just in a short term market sense, but in a this idea of it as a call option uh, on a future system, on a new future potential system, uh, it starts to get a lot more interesting. Uh, certainly, it uh, brings up a lot of questions of potential and really highlights uh, where some concerns in the mainstream system can so clearly be addressed by the crypto ecosystem. But I want to thank you so much, Nathaniel Whitmore, for breaking down some of the key elements and stories coming through this week, getting into that deeper analysis in your long read Sunday. I look forward to reading next week and continuing this discussion further along then. Nathaniel, thanks so much for being with us and stay with us at blocktv.com for all the latest in news and information and of course, the best in-depth analysis. I'm Asher Westrop Evans, thanks for watching. For more news and updates, follow us on 